This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is May the 6th. I am John Dunn. And we haven't asked you for a while, so I just want to say that we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this podcast on your social media, with your staff. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, consider rating us, writing a review. It just helps more people find the show and, you know, the more the merrier. And my favorite event of the year, the Best Friends National Conference, is fast approaching. It's June 23rd and 24th, so... What is that? Uh, five, carry eight, carry the one, about six weeks away. And I want to make sure you, A, know about it, B, register, and C, the most important one, know about the discount you get because you are a podcast listener. So let's start with A. It's all virtual this year, the Best Friends National Conference Pandemic Edition, I suppose you could say, and that means it is the most accessible conference ever. No cost for flights, hotel, meals, so if that's prevented you from attending in the past, then this year it is perfect. Even though it's virtual, it will still be interactive, you'll be able to meet others and network just like you would if the conference were an in-person event, so please don't think this is somehow going to be not as amazing as the conference normally is, it's just going to be different. So now on to B, registration is open. Bestfriends.org slash conference. It's easy peasy. You go there, there's a big orange button on that page that says register today. You just enter some information and you're ready to go. And finally, C, the fee for registration is the lowest maybe ever for a Best Friends conference. I'm sure it is. It's just $55. But you, a podcast listener, get a $10 discount, only 45 bucks. So all you have to do when you register, enter the discount code podcast, all lowercase. That's important because it won't work unless you do all lowercase. Again, head to bestfriends.org slash conference, use the all lowercase discount code podcast, and you're going to be an attendee for $45. Okay, so on to the main event today, part two of my interview with Ed Jameson, the newly appointed CEO and Operation Kindness in North Texas. Why did he leave his position at Dallas Animal Services, where he's been so incredibly successful? Well, we talk about that, and we talk about rural America, plenty of other things, including where we pick up on the conversation today with DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, I hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Ed. And let's talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you know, we've seen this big shift within the field. Uh, some very honest conversations about the topic, uh, our unconscious biases, our implicit biases, and how those come into play when we're working with the public and, and trying to save lives. And, you know, quite frankly, <laughs> having some conversations about proper, full-on racism uh, in the field. So, you know, how people of color are massively underrepresented in the animal sheltering and animal welfare workforce. Ed, you are a person of color, and you and I have talked about this a bit in the past, but, you know, from your perspective, I know you're involved in a lot of different panels and discussions on this. So where do you think we stand now as an industry in May of 2021? Yeah, um... And I, I can't remember how in depth we talked about this, but my life 
as someone who was adopted by a white family. Um, absolutely amazing. They are, they are my family. They gave me everything they could to have me be as diversified as, as possible. I have particularly in the last 18 months, uh, 12 months in particular, I know the privilege that I had um, simply just in my, um, how I um, grew up, um, every opportunity that my parents gave me. And man, I appreciate that and try to use that for, because I didn't talk about race for the first almost 45 and a half years of my life. I just wanted people because I'm a good worker. I didn't talk about race when I applied for Garfield Heights. I didn't talk about race when I applied for, um, and then even when I got there in Dallas, it was, I don't want to say more acceptable, but it was the, the race topic and the divide was, was already there well before Ed Jamison, just on how the city was set up and, and segregated over time. Um, and to where I'm at now, I do talk about race because I do have a platform that many, many don't have. Just just got called to be on a call by best friends that a meeting with the, the Black Caucus at um, uh, the State House in Texas. And I welcome that. Laura, my good friend, I, I will certainly move my schedule around. It's important. We need to be represented on on these calls, and it's about the housing initiatives that Best Friends has in um in the state of Texas. So I want to be at the table. I've always wanted. I'd rather be there without a voice, so at least I can listen. And when you get a chance to be at a table and have a voice, I want to do that. But I also understand my colleagues that don't that are like, I don't want to carry this torch anymore. Somebody else needs to fix this. We didn't break it. Somebody else needs to fix it. So that's just where I'm at personally. That I will take that. The organization I'm at now, Operation Kindness. It's one of the reasons that I said yes. It's not in its workforce very diverse in its makeup of races yet. The location, it's just north of the city of Dallas. You hear all my talks. I talk about Southern Dallas, Southern Dallas, Southern Dallas. This is not. But I've already had some epiphanies in just it's two weeks now that, I, that I've been there. And it's great people, but they're bored was very much on board with, I said that when I have the opportunity, I'm going to talk about the DEI. And they said, we, we want that and we know we need to do better. So that made me feel really good that 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 didn't scare them and um, that it was going to be something we talked about. So just on with um, Natalie, who used to work for Best Friends, who worked for Operation Kindness now, amazing. I was like, I, I want us to look at our um, all the information we put out and, and race is something that's easy to see. We, you know, you, you can see that in a lot of realms, but I said, let's start with language. Cause I was at a chase bank on Wednesday, getting a paper notarized and there were four of us in the bank. So four patrons. And I was the only one who spoke English. And I said, man, I even out here in Carrollton, Texas, very well to do area. I don't think that we're embracing language um, inclusion. And Natalie immediately was like, you know what? None of our publications are not just bilingual and any extra language. So very quickly, Natalie found a plug in our whole entire website as of yesterday is now being test drove that can be translated into 100 different languages. And we're looking at how can all of our forms from adoption questionnaires to everything else. I have seen a lot of promising things from the funding world in animal welfare over the last six to 10 months that they are weaving that into funding. You know it and I know it, money makes the world go round. It just does. And so those funders have the biggest chance to make an impact. 
that if you're not finding ways to be inclusive, you're not getting funded by us anymore. So I really like that. Best Friends has, has woven that into its funding structure. Maddie's Fund has been at the, the forefront of that. PetSmart Charities was doing this work before and has really amped up their game. HSUS and then their funding. So, I mean, I'm really excited about that. A lot of the bigs, um, AWA, which I am a board member of, has really taken and is really trying to invest to help um, give organizations tools. But I will tell you that as time since George Floyd has um, passed, where there were a lot more people outwardly on board, I get a sense that there is some, and it's, this is just American history, it's not, the, it's not the thing anymore. And I can see some people pulling back. And as discussions get heavier and heavier, they're harder. And it trips me out when somebody does something that is racist and are like, you're so quick to call me a racist. And it's usually talking about a system. That's something that it systematically sets up against race. I'm like, well, don't do racist things. You won't get called a racist. It's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty black and white on that. That um, You don't have to worry about being called racist if you open your mind to look at it, that the system is automatically putting certain segments behind. They're not starting at the same place. That is racist if you're not allowing people to start at the same thing. And that discussion is getting harder and harder in certain circles to have. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly see that. And, you know, this pushback, I mean, some of it, I mean, to be to be frank and very pointed, it's just pure racism. But I do think there's a segment of white Americans who almost take it personally. You know, when someone says you had a leg up because you were a white male, a white cisgender male, it's I don't know. Is it because somehow it demeans their accomplishments? To be very clear, I'm not making any excuses and we shouldn't feel badly for people who can't self-reflect in this way, I suppose. But it's almost a defensiveness. And listen, no one's mad at you, okay? No one's saying that you are responsible for slavery or anything that's happened in the last 400 years, but you are responsible for what happens today. If we can drop that defensiveness, we can put our heads and hearts together and, and start to work to fix it. And, you know, but again, with some people, you realize, oh, yeah, it's that you actually like how the system is currently working. Yep. You realize that either something's not going to be quite as easy for you. And it's not usually that. It's just that, oh, there's going to be more people getting what I get. It doesn't mean you have to get any less. It, re- it really doesn't. The pie is pretty big. You know, um, you just want to give people opportunities. And there's a lot of systems that start people um, significantly further behind. And that's all. If we can get that to try to level the playing ground there, it's, I, I tell people, look in your organization, see who you have. Again, if you have, again, you have that, you have to have a college degree. How many people have been working in shelters for 10, 15, 20 years? They can run that place better than anybody else, but they're capped. They're not going to get that next level management leadership position because they don't have a piece of paper. They don't have time to get that piece of paper because they work overtime every week at that shelter, making sure that those animals are are fed and cleaned and exercised and everything. They don't need the piece of paper to do their job. They can run that building inside now, but they have a cap on them. Um, and so things like that, I'm encouraging organizations to, to look at those. That's part of the system. Do you have to have that or does the equivalent work experience give you the same thing that you're ultimately saying that you want to get to? And more often than not, it will. Time alone doesn't give you everything. There's tons of people who work somewhere for 20 years and they stink. That's, you know, you you got that all over the place. But there's a bunch that are really good and they're just capped out because of some of these things that they say you have to have a piece of paper to do this. 
that's I just I don't subscribe to that for everything. Yeah, you need a lot of pieces of paper to be a veterinarian. You need a lot of pieces of papers to be, you know, doctors and to be a professor. I'm I'm on board with that. But there's a lot of hard-ass work getting done by people who don't have that piece of paper or a bunch of extra letters after your name in animal shelters that could be getting a lot of work done. I have to give a plug here for Best Friends. That education question, it's something that we are very focused on. In fact, the department I work in, my teammates are just kicking major league butt on this, developing training opportunities. So we have the leaders of tomorrow, but that we're also not losing the leaders of today that, you know, don't have that piece of paper. So, yeah, hell, let's create those opportunities, create the ability for people to get more training. Uh, and I'll put some links on the, the podcast website to those programs so people can learn more. Uh, even if you're not a paid employee in the field, there are things that you can benefit from. So uh, again, up on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And okay, so just back to the DEI work, I think, you know, the question has been and, and always will be for me is how do we sustain it? You know, big changes like this. I mean, they need to happen across the entire sheltering and rescue world. And I think for some organizations, it's a struggle to understand how to keep it at the forefront, how to do it right. You know, it's a big like how there, you know, how do you stop it from fading into the background? As you said earlier, I think we've seen, uh, you know, really good leadership on this. You know, I'm thrilled to say best friends, but also Maddie's fun, our I don't know, maybe I'm just naive, <laughs> but for a lot of organizations, I don't think the fading away is out of bad intention, you know, it's uh, or a lack of caring. It's that they're busy and, you know, it's just an issue maybe of prioritization, you know, keeping it at the forefront. And, and this is one of those things that there's just not a couple of boxes that have to get checked. Okay, we did that. We changed our hiring practice and, oh, we took some barriers out of our adoption questionnaire. This isn't just checking some boxes. You have to change culture for, for true DEI to set in. And that's hard because you don't change culture overnight. You can check certain boxes on a lot of things in this world literally overnight with enough money, time, effort. Boxes checked. I'm done. I'm buying the right cleaning product for my animals. Cool. Now there's going to be better health and the kennels are going to be clean better because I bought. I finally bought the right stuff. I got the right medicine. We can now treat this. That box, it doesn't work like that when you're talking about being inclusive. You have to change a culture. And so that's that's what's hard. And it, it, it makes things, even people that were more outwardly on board, it does make it a lot closer to home for them when they see that their culture and the way that they have to think about something, the way they have to actually go about something is going to be different. That's a different kind of change than the just changing a process in, in, in your shelter or how you respond to calls. It's you're doing it because of this. And you're going to be intentional about why you're doing something. You have to do it over and over and over. And then the, 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 the muscle memory, you know, starts to set in. And it's more than I'm just doing it out of being monotonous. I'm doing it out of this is my the, the new way I believe in things. That's just a lot harder. And there's people who have been focusing on this work way longer than me that can say that a, a heck of a lot more eloquently than I can. But um to change a culture is something that takes a lot of investment of time, energy, your feelings. My feelings have been heard about a million times having these discussions. It's hard, but if you just, and I've seen people in this discussion that shut down on both sides of the table and they don't come back to the table. And so now you just, you know, we finally had everybody at the table on a lot of these discussions. And when people get offended and they stop coming, 
So it's on both sides of being able to say hard things and talk about hard things. And I, I don't ever want anybody's feelings to be hurt. That's not why you're doing it. They're going to be hurt sometimes in this on this topic. They they I hate when my feelings are hurt. I'm a pretty sensitive guy and, and get emotional about stuff. Um, but this is one of those that you're just going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations, even when you you might not be there yet. And it's one of those we're going to parking lot this or we'll agree to disagree for now so we can keep working on the things that we're more in line with. I think that that's fine for keeping things moving in, in the right direction. But I do feel that they have certainly slowed down on that progression. And some of its people have left the table because their feelings are hurt or don't want to look at themselves hard enough. Um, again, for me to look at my organization at DAS and realize that I still had systematic questions in my adoption questionnaire, that wasn't the intention of why we put them in there, but we realized that's what it was doing. We're making this person talk about things that because of their living status is automatically setting them further behind somebody who has a different living status or because they can afford a six foot fence or whatever. And we, we got that out, but we, you know, we were willing to take the actions and look at ourselves and say, we just have to keep fixing things one at a time and making this our new, new way of life. And, you know, that, that goal I said of winning today, the bar has been changed for winning today when it, when it comes to being inclusive. Be nice to somebody once. It's got to be every day you're nice to them and asking them to the table. Okay, well, let's talk about this big Ed Jamison news. Uh, I suppose it's not breaking news anymore, but uh, CNN might say it's a developing story. <laughs> You've taken a, a new position left the municipal sheltering field and accepted a, a position as the CEO of the nonprofit Operation Kindness. So, Ed, why this and why now? Man, it happened quickly. Um, great organization. And actually, again, good good timing for the, for the show I'm on at the Best Friends Conference in Dallas in July of 2019. Nikki, who was the development director, came running down. It was after that opening ceremony um, that, that me and Ryan were up there doing our, our data thing. And we talked about our number one rescue partners and all that. Well, Nikki comes running down, Ed, 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 you got to meet Bob, our new, new CEO. And I met Bob and he had said to me, I told my team, listen to that. I like that guy. He's, you know, seems like a nice guy. But why the hell are we on that list of, you know, number one partners that he's talking about? He's like, that offends me. Not mad at Ed. I'm mad at us. For what, Why aren't we on? We should be their number one partner. And we, we hit it off right there and really started working on our relationship. And then COVID hit. We were at their grand opening, 10 or $12 million building expansion, two big, huge wings, a medical wing and big, huge, um, big dog holding area. It's beautiful. March 12th, we were there for that ribbon cutting. The world changed March 13th, March 13th last year. And then a week later, everybody's doors were shut. But Bob and I stayed in contact, set up weekly calls and everything. So a couple of months ago, he called me and told me he's retiring. I'm like, oh, no, Bob, man, can't you stay a couple more years? And he's like, nope, I said I'd stay till construction's done. Want to be young enough to go golfing, you know, when I retire. And uh, so he's just like, if you know anybody, you know, um, you know, I was like, oh, I'm in a bunch of organizations. I can post them. And he's like, ah, we don't even know that. We're, we're really kind of trying to target some people. So if you know anybody that might do this. So my wheels were spinning a little bit. I was trying to think about people for him. And I was thinking that night, I'm like, huh, I wonder if he was thinking about me um, when, when he asked that. Because I just wasn't thinking about leaving DAS. It wasn't even a thought. And he didn't flat out ask me to. So the next day I text him and say, hey, my wheels are spinning a little bit. I'll give you a call later. And I called and I said, were you thinking about me? And he's like, I absolutely was. I was hoping you would get there, but I I know how dedicated you are to DAS and I didn't want it to be pressure, but I am retiring and I wanted to see. So I was like, you need to meet my board president, vice president, regardless. You know, they're great people. Even when I leave, you need to have that relationship with them. 
and I met them and they had me hooked on that first call. Mary and Scott are their names. And they said, we've got all these opportunities. We got this beautiful facility. Bob helped get us through all this construction and this pandemic. It's not done, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And we love Operation Kindness. We love the history, but we know it's got to be different moving forward. And we want somebody who can make it different and can help us to grow. And it's just, we, we just clicked on it. I said, I'm not, if you want somebody to sit on their hands, I, I can just do the same. That That's easy. You know, that, that Bob's already got that equation figured out. I can do that. No, we don't want somebody to sit on their hands. We want, and that's just how the conversations kept progressing into, you can raise enough money and you want to build another location. We're behind you. You know, sky's the limit to whatever you can take this organization to add. So it kind of put that fire to, okay, there's just not many things as big as uh, Dallas. Um, so trying to use that as a bar, you can go to LA or you can go to LA. That's really one of the, the only places that are, that are, that are bigger. And I love California, but that, that wasn't what I was thinking about doing. And I said, um, this world is a lot different now. And I've always said that as government shelters started to get better, some nonprofits made the pivot to what their role should be in that community better than others did. And to have the ability to do that. And I don't think that government shelters like DAS should have 24 hour kitten nurseries. I think that Operation Kindnesses should have kitten nurseries. Um, DAS, we've got a part of a ward, but it's not very big. So as it fills up, we then drive dogs down to Austin. And Austin helps um, finish off the treatment for those parvo dogs so we can take the next in. Why the heck are we driving two hours away when we could drive 20 miles up the street to Operation Kindness? We've got a medical wing with the Parvo Award in it. And they were excited about that type of thought process, that we will be that nonprofit that isn't telling the government shelters what we'll do for them. The government shelters are going to tell us what they need help with, and then we're going to develop a plan to help them. And I think that sky's the limit. There, There's a bunch of great nonprofits all over the place, and even here in North Texas. Uh, my friends at HS&T, you may say in North Texas, they're ones in that model. They do a lot of heavy lifting. And that's what I hope to be is, you know, they're 45 minutes to the west of us. They're the 16th largest city. So they got their hands full as it is where we can collaborate. We'll collaborate. And everything in this North Texas swath here, this Interstate 35, Interstate 75 area, we want to be that go to, especially in the medical realm. I know DAS is able to patch up a lot of animals due to the investment we made in their medical. Most don't have that. Most don't have x-ray machines and ultrasound machines and microscopes that can read anything and everything we do with Operation Kindness. So that's really where I'm at. And, and two weeks into it, the team has been pretty good with it. First, Kimberly Altman, who used to work for HSUS and um, you know just left there recently, she messaged me saying, Montgomery County's about to be in trouble. They're doing a huge seizure tomorrow. I'm like, oh, Montgomery, all right, I'll reach out to Aaron, your good friend, Aaron down there, Aaron, Aaron Johnson. He's like, yeah, it could be upwards of 70 dogs we're bringing in. So, man, anything you can help with, we would we would appreciate. Um, so I was on a manager call with my new team, day two and a half, and I said, hey, hey guys, hey, team, I want us to help out Montgomery County. And you can see their eyes get real big, but you can see they were they were excited also. But it's funny. I said, how many animals do we think we could help them with? And Kelly's like, Ed, it's looking like we could make room for two dogs. No, no, two, we're, 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 we don't get out of bed in the morning to help two dogs in, in a day. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling good with that answer, but you said get me something quick. And then she came back very quickly with, we can do at least 20. And the team 
mobilized. The next morning, I met them halfway, and we were able to transfer in 21 dogs. And um, it was really cool to see this new team that hasn't been a quick reactionary force team. They seem to be on board. I said, this is our new norm. We're going to help our North Texas shelters as much as we can. And when somebody anywhere that's within our striking distance needs help, instead of finding a way to say no and the reasons that we can't do something, start training that in your brain. What is it going to take to get that answer to be a yes? And they seem to be pretty excited up to this point. I want to work for a place that's like that and to have the nimbleness. And again, we, we manage the bureaucracy that's just built in the big city. We manage that pretty well. But here on the nonprofit side, if you want it, find the money, go buy it and make it happen. And um, that's pretty exciting to be able to be that fleet afoot. I think we're just going to make things happen and, and really set a new standard that hopefully I think that government shelters across the country were able to look to DAS as they found a way to get this kind of stuff done. I want nonprofits that are trying to figure out how they fit in in their community now as government shelters get better to say, yeah, let's take that Operation Kindness model. And that's a pretty good model to follow. Well, tell me then what Operation Kindness was doing before then. You know, when you met Bob at the conference, what was the the focus programmatically of the organization? Were It, it sounds like maybe they just weren't relating to shelters directly uh, in that way. They had, and they'll, they'll, to a T, they'll tell you, they have about 41 rescue partners. And they're like, some are more, some are just, hey, we helped with a couple of animals a couple of years ago and they're they're on our list. And they would come weekly to DAS, but they'll tell you they were pretty much in their box. They wanted easy movers. The same thing that every nonprofit will say, and I understand it, in rescue, we need to move animals through our system or else we're clogged up. Well, somebody, somebody's got to help the next level animal. And most government shelters just aren't going to be able to do that. And to our talk that we had a few months ago about budgets, it's only going to get tighter in that world. And it, going to get tight in nonprofit world, but we're nim- we should be nimble and can use our money in different ways. So they, they were helping, but they were looking for more on the easy side as opposed to harder level. There's still a lot of animals, in my opinion, that middle level, that really good shelters um, that are trying really hard, just don't have the resources to give them that we should be able to do. And I have challenged the team for them to try to understand the urgency, to have a, a, a government shelter urgency to them that we can bring in whatever we want. So if all of our cages are full, they're full. All right, so be it. But every time we're not moving animals out of our cages, there's a really hard, dedicated government shelter worker going to have to make a horrible decision and put down a really good animal that just needs a little bit more than they're able to give them. And if they can start thinking about that and make their box to get outside of their box and start to see the whole playing field, there's plenty of animals here in Texas. Can, can we constructively get them to the people who can place them so that the Palm Valleys aren't having to make tough decisions, so that El Pasos aren't having to make tough decisions. Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, uh, Austin, everybody, Louisiana, Florida, California, tons of animals still. So we can iron some of this stuff out and kind of regain some trust that we still have while people are still sitting at this same animal welfare table. I think I can influence that more now from the nonprofit side than I could continue to do at DAS. And if I didn't think they had the people in place there, then it just wouldn't even been a thought. But as I really started to progress on, do I want to make this move? That is a kick-ass team at Dallas Animal Services. And I don't have I don't have to candy coat this. I told the, the powers that be at City Hall when they're talking about secession and all that. It's the only, the only thing that can mess up DAS is City Hall at this point. If you take away the resources, if you take away the support, if you take away, we'll just believe a Facebook post before we talk to the department to really get the what really happened on this case. That'll mess up DAS. 
But if they continue to support DAS, they have all the knowledge. They have experts. There's 30-something people working at DAS that can go and run most any shelter in the country right now today. 30-something. That can be upper management, if not the top, of almost any animal shelter in the country. So they have that infrastructure to keep going. But without the support, the hill just gets so much steeper to climb. So... Again, I it, I cried a lot leaving DAF. That, that was my hardest week ever. Way harder than any beginning week. That was my hardest last week leaving them. And I just going 20 miles up the road. But I felt good that they have the infrastructure there. And really, really excited about the opportunities of the nonprofit side of things. That I, I just think we're going to be able to set a new standard for what's really needed and what these government shelters really need to save more animals. I love it. I love it. This is one of my soapbox issues, Ed. Uh, so I'm sorry, but you know, you know, the role that a nonprofit can play in the community, and you know, we might even go as far to say many organizations, rescue organizations, should play. You can totally be a very effective nonprofit. You can save lives. You can raise money, pay staff, great facility, great organization. But ultimately, you know, as, as you said, I think you have to answer the question of what is your mission? Like, what are you doing and why are you there? And are you impacting the lives of pets in your local shelter as much as you can? And it might be uncomfortable because you're not making those decisions alone in some way, right? It's a partnership and the shelter is saying, hey, we need help with something. It's almost like, you know, they're more dictating what you should be doing, but it really is a partnership. I'm sorry, but you really ought to be looking down the street and saying, am I doing the most I can to help the shelter in my community. Uh, And I couldn't agree more. I'm not saying names. Again, there's tons of great government shelters, nonprofits. There's tons of great ones. But I have seen that from coast to coast. As the community demanded that the government shelter increase its life-saving and adoption programs and foster programs, they've done that. By and large, that has happened leaps and bounds. It does change. My friends, my colleagues on the nonprofit side running shelters, many will say we've had to reinvent our mission. We're not the adoption factories that we were a decade ago. We're not needed for that. And that's fine. And they've shifted in the resource models. And hey, we can provide surgeries for the government shelters. TNR, we might not have done that before, but now that's a need for us is to get into that, whatever it might be. But their role's not going to change. It's already changed. And the ones who won't have the, the honest discussion to say, can we just sit at a table and let's talk about, I hate redundancy. I, I hate when I'm doing the same thing that somebody else is doing in the same location because I'll pack up and do it somewhere else that it's needed, or I'll get out of that business and go into business that's got a niche that somebody else isn't doing. And there are some that refuse to do that. Nope. I raised money on this. I raised money for the last 200 years doing this. We're going to continue to raise money. But it's not what's needed the most in the community. You know, it's not even a challenge. It's, it's an ask as someone who's now been on both sides of the table that these government shelters are working their ass off, too. They really are. You know, and when they're having to basically work against a nonprofit, that's really sad because you're wasting resources that are in a community. And there's not a community in this country that has enough resources in the animal realm. There's still some resource source void somewhere that if you could just sit down and talk to each other, you could find a way you get that void filled. Again, I it makes me really excited to be in a position to be able to do that now, to put our money where our mouth is, to take harder animals, to be transparent. In government world, you you have to be transparent. You, you know what I mean? You're going to get open records anyway all day long. 
So, you know, in Dallas, we just put it out there anyway. We'll beat you to the punch. Go to the open data portal. We want to be extremely transparent in the work that we're doing and then talk about our shortcomings because you just can't fix them. If it's a shortcoming you want to improve on, you're going to need help on it. And you got to talk about it if you want to actually do that. But it's scary. You got to put yourself out there for that. And you're going to take some shots when you talk honestly. But again, just to see the excitement in this, this the new team that I've um, come into over there, it's it's pretty cool to see because they, they love saving lives there. And I said, we're not going to lower our quality, but we're going to increase our quantity. So we got to find efficiencies and we got to move animals through here so that we can bring in the next batch. I have to be honest, Ed. I'm a bad host. Uh, and I did not do as much uh, research on Operation Kindness as I should have. Uh, it's not a small organization, though, I don't think. Uh, is it annual revenue about $10 million? No, no, no. I, w- I wish my budget was $10 million. Oh, I thought I saw that on the financials. Just did a big capital, did a big capital thing, and a couple of big things came in over. But yeah, our budget is about five point was about five point five million dollars before the pandemic. So that's what I'm playing with right now. And they are, we do have some reserves we haven't had in the past, but that that was kind of an anomaly. We'd love to keep that coming in, but a couple of things happened for that to come in. So a little over five five point five million is about what the, the operating budget is. About seventy employees. And before COVID, they did just under 5,000 animals. So I've been diving into the software and wearing pet point out on the, the reports I need. And you know that report I had at DAS. I need that same one over here, you know, that tells us when we're being too slow at something. Um, but we really want to up the numbers and not just let's go find some factory that there's a bunch of eight-week-old puppies that are ready to be adopted as soon as they're fixed. I mean, we'll take those too. Don't get me wrong. But which ones need some help? Cats is a huge thing that Texas in general, a lot of the country left us behind. We were slow to the TNR game. Nobody wants to give TNR money anymore. And we're swimming in cats. We got dogs really headed on the right trajectory. So I know particularly those little cats, kittens that are going to be okay if you can get them there. We're really, it's kitten season, just got here about a week ago in, in, in North Texas. So we're we're jumping two feet into into that. And especially with the pandemic, the public's still not in our building we think we can still play a big part on getting these kittens uh, to age and wait and getting them into good homes. Um, well, it's silly to put you on the spot now, I think, since you have, still have that new car smell at Operation Kindness. But is the goal, is it to focus on Dallas? I mean, you're a big thinker, Ed. I do know that about you. So is it the Metroplex? Is it regional? Is it national? Well, there is there is definitely we're working on the, the overall plan. Obviously, there's a connection with DAS and lines of communication are, are obviously really good. And I certainly know the needs there. Um, just talked with Jordan Craig yesterday, too. And we we're talking about men. She's like, yeah, there's certain segments, you know, it's hard for us, but we know we can get them out. So I understand if you have other partners that those animals aren't going to get out. Love you to take them from DAS. That gives us more bandwidth to do other stuff. So I'm hoping that, I hope it's by the end of next week, I want to send out a survey to our existing partners, asking them, what do they need? Please, tell, I'm new here, <laughs> whatever your relationship was, whether it was the best relationship or worst, t- tell me tell me what it is, the good, the bad, the ugly. So we can then try to look for, I keep telling the team, let's find our jam. What's our jam that we're just good at, and but is different than what we were doing? And let's just start really focusing on that. And if that can relieve whether that's taking 10 more animals from each of those partners each week or every other week, great. Or if it's a whole bunch from one, that really gives them the breathing room. I do want us to be that North Texas emergency hub. We should play a role when hurricanes come rolling through. Again, DAS for the first time was able to play a role in that. The government shelter shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be clearing out their cages so they can take for the hurricane. 
Operation Kindness should be doing that. Done deal. Hurricane's coming. Get us those dogs that are off a hold. Get, get them cats. Get them, get them up to us so you can clear room for all the displaced pets. That is definitely going to be a new role. But still providing the support for the everyday shelters up here. There, there's a lot that I need to get the relationship with because I didn't. I was in Dallas. You know, I had relationships with the receiving partners, not with all the other government shelters. So there's a bunch of really good shelters in North Dallas, north of Dallas, that I just I know them. I know their leader and they're good people, but we never were able to talk on this level. Um, but I, I we're going to have a national role. I don't know what that is. Again, transport something. If we need to be a short term hub while animals are making their way north, then we'll certainly explore that. I just think that sky's the limit if you're willing to talk about what's the problem we're trying to solve for. And then we're going to honestly say Operation Kindness. And you know me. I'll call best friends. I need some financial support. We're going to do this. <laughs> you know, this is the program that we want to do. And here's the life saving impact. There's not a life-saving gap with Operation Kindness. We need we do everything we can for every animal, and yeah, on occasion something isn't able to get out, usually through the, through the medical. But we're going to be able to help other shelters with their life-saving gap in in a good, responsible way that helps give them more bandwidth to help more animals. So it's pretty it's pretty exciting. I'm going to a place with an intake that I mean it was forty thousand in, in uh, 2019 at DAS. It's not about that 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 overall number. It, it's about what are you helping. Um, and are you helping something that really needed to be helped? And we, we got the ability to do that there with the, between the building and the people that are there. Yeah, this is all so interesting to me. And, and I'm excited to be able to watch what happens, you know, April Moore in Kansas City with her opportunity to essentially start from scratch with the field services department at KC Pet Project. In some ways, I feel it's almost like you have this same opportunity to design a nonprofit based on what you needed you know, sit down, pad and paper. What kind of help did I need at DAS that I didn't get? What is that perfect partner? And how can Operation Kindness be that partner? Exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. It's I do know what, not just DAS, but, but a lot of government shelters, the things that they want to do that is just never going to, most government shelters can't treat heartworm. They just don't have, it's not a cheap treatment. But on the you know, if you have what we have at Operation Kindness, if you can afford to buy the meds and you have the medical staff, you, you can certainly treat that. So we do. So that can be if there are government shelters. I know there's government shelters in Texas struggling with that, that if they could pull the numbers, it's probably going to be like the AS, 35% less likely for a live outcome if you have heartworm. We can treat that. That's not hard for us to do. But yeah, having that inside of both sides of the table, you know, my only hope is that COVID doesn't impact the fundraising on the nonprofit side so bad because, you know, it takes money to do a lot of things also. I haven't seen that slow down yet, even on the government side, when you can show this is what we're going to fix. Here's the evidence of what we need <laughs> and how much we need and resource to do it. And we're going to deliver the results on it. Typically, funders are pretty good with that. If you can lay all of that out with, with the real sound plan, because they know your end of year report is going to come back that you met the goal that they wanted. They bet on a winner. Uh, something that came to me there as you were talking about that is, you know, rural America, it, it's a thing. Capacity to treat, you know, treatable medical issues like heartworm shelters in rural communities across the country for something like that without help, forget it. You know, we did an episode on the podcast about some of the challenges facing rural America. You know, if we look at the big cities, Dallas, LA, Atlanta, wherever, tens of thousands of animals entering the shelter system in those communities and the support from the movement developed and is there. The resources have been allotted and 
that's not wrong. It's totally appropriate, obviously. But, you know, as we look now to what it's going to take to achieve 2025, there are a lot of communities that are struggling. And quite frankly, in extreme examples, sometimes no one knows, best friends or anyone else, no one knows there's even a shelter there. So what do we do? You know, Texas, get out of the big cities. You got communities with small numbers of intake. So what is the structure we need to sustainably support those areas? And again, back to the who you are, it may involve getting out of your community and getting into those areas. And, and, you know, as you were talking there, I thought, you know, what a great role Operation Kindness could play. Uh, well, look at me. I'm just I'm just telling you what to do. Sorry, but you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on there. And it's and they have some relationships already, which is cool. They said a name of a, um, an area that I've never heard it before. And we got a bunch of it's a bunch of Yorkies. So I'm just, oh my gosh, but they are jacked up Yorkies. They, they, they have tons of issues. So throughout it, they, they, they might not have been able to make it out of that shelter. So, you know, of course we'll take York, but we're going to have them for a while. They're, they're a bunch. Luckily, multiple Yorkies can go in, in one run and um, over in, over in the sick room. But it takes, it's a lot harder to reach rural. Again, you can go, like you said, to Dallas, Atlanta, Los Angeles and say, we're going to help 50 at a time. But those rurals might need help three at a time. You know, that gives them the room. I told you, Garfield Heights, I had six cages. It's not rural, but it was small. Getting 21 dogs in one transport from Aaron Johnson and his team at Montgomery County was much easier than getting four, 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 and four driving all over North Texas to, to get them. That would have taken multiple days to get those 21 animals, you know, going to shelters all over the place. So the rural is super important. I know that from the NACA standpoint, we're, we're doing a lot of talking about rural and Mike Wheeler from Arkansas, absolute great guy is our kind of our go-to rural guy, making sure that we're not losing touch and staying focused on the big and that, you know, what are the smaller places that are busting their ass and doing good work? What do, what do they really need? And he, he had shared with us just yesterday on a NACA call that a, a, our NACA statement on BSL got a longstanding Arkansas city that had BSL that pushed them over the edge to say, we're going to get rid of this, this NACA statement. And I'm hearing people equally say that on TNR on the NACA statement on that. So it's, again, it goes, ties into that people organizations that have voices using their voices where they're needed the most can carry a lot further. And if they get outside of their way that I only need to speak for my organization to get donors to give to me, your voice actually, if it's loud enough, can carry a really long way and have a really big impact. And so we're just I'm looking to amplify Operation Kindness is not just our voice, but our ears also so that we can listen to what what people need. And we want to be the yes factory. You need help. We're going to find a way to say yes. Tell us what you need. Um, and if we can't help you today, we're going to bust our ass to develop a plan that we can help you tomorrow on that program. We don't have that program yet. That's the next program we're going to work on so that we can help a shelter like that that needs help. I mean, if there's a need, it's to know who to help. I mean, as I said, you know, there are shelters that like nobody even knows exist. When that big storm hit Texas uh, and a few other states a few weeks ago, the incredible network partner team at Best Friends called organization shelters that were in those affected areas, all of them, uh, you know, Best Friends partners or not, and said, what can we do to help you? And this one community, super small, one full-time staff member, another part-time, we actually had them on the podcast. My memory is terrible, but I think at the time they had 14 animals in care 
a pipe burst at the shelter, froze, burst, and the director had to take the animals home. You know, we get on the phone and say, how can we help? And Ed, she started crying, <laughs> and, you know, and she said, I didn't think anyone uh, knew about us, cared about us, uh, that kind of thing. And so, you know, as far along as we are with our data and all of those things, you know, in 2021, this information age, how many communities are there that are still like that silo? They feel alone. They need help, but don't think anyone will help when, of course, that that just isn't true. I had, had, had no idea. I can tell you that the number of people that enjoy putting animals down across this country, it's not very big anymore. They're, 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 people don't want to put stuff down, especially once they know there's an option. And it might take some work and it might be hard. I might need some help getting a resource or talking to my city council or what, whatever it is, or needing a NACA statement or a best friend statement or something to show that, hey, I'm not the only person who knows there's another way. That those those people are really far in between that, you know, the, the old school animal control thought. People, they, they want help. And when we talk about DEI, when you're putting inclusion into, it's inclusion of our whole entire animal welfare industry that the, the rural has been left out of a lot for a multitude of reasons, systematically for a multitude of reasons, probably none on purpose. Again, go to get the bang for the buck, get a place with 40,000 animals, 30,000 animals. So I think that it's money well spent and efforts well spent on, on reaching out for those just to try to get a contact to see then to say, I'm, I'm here to help if you need anything. I'm telling you that that first meeting with Gregory Castle of not being judged and not because that's, that's what I thought I was going to get. This is this big, bad best friends coming down here. And he walked through that horrible kennel with dogs everywhere. It's a noise box. And I'm trying to talk to him. I knew he couldn't hear a word I was saying because it's so noisy in there. And he was just like, you just let us know. Timmy's here. She'll tell us if you need something. You know, make sure you tell her. And she'll tell us if we need something. That helped get me on a trajectory of, yeah, there's people who do care. They're not just here to judge about this piece of crap building with mice all over the place and double stack, you know, built in runs. It it, it it can steamroll pretty fast when when people know that there, there's people who genuinely want to help. And again, when we got to get out of each other's way, so much judgment, uh, all the different factions that are really good at fighting with each other and all. I just don't got time for that crap, John. You know that. I just, I don't have time for it. I'm too busy. There's enough landmines of my own that I have to navigate. And so when the, when the drama stuff starts, I just, I, I don't, I don't got time for it. And that's a table I'll get myself up out of um, if, if the table wants to get into drama stuff. And we're getting closer, man. We're getting so much closer here. The final leg, again, being used to being a marathon runner, those final few miles are a hell of a lot harder than those first couple miles were. So I think that's where animal animal welfare is at here, that we're not done. There's still some miles to go. But if we can just keep our crap together here, we're, we're way closer to, to getting the answer than, than I think anybody thought we would have been a decade ago. Absolutely. Uh, Ed, listen, I, you know, I could sit here and talk to you all day. I think we're approaching two hours, but unfortunately we can't do that. And And listen, I know I'm not alone in this when I say that I'm really looking forward to this next chapter for you, you know, what's going to happen uh, you know, with you, I always feel like the sky's the limit, my friend. It's a pretty exciting time. Um, I, I think here here in North Texas, certainly it's exciting for, for me. And I'm I'm really looking forward to, to what the future is going to hold here because um, I'm getting older, but I'm not so old that I'm slowing down yet. I, I still got I still got some good, good years in me left to uh, keep kicking out some good work. And uh, with with the right team and support, 
I think it's going to be pretty fun. Keep keep your eye on North Texas on what that team in DAS does. Again, there's great organizations. Again, mad respect for Humane Society of North Texas. And again, Operation Kindness. We're going to again. We're we're not small, but we're not super big. We're I don't care about overall size. It's about impact. I I have told the team I want us to be the most impactful nonprofit in North Texas. That I've made that very clear. Whatever that looks like, we'll have a little better idea of what that looks like but I, we should be the most impactful nonprofit in, in north texas without a doubt the producers are tawny hammond amy charlton bethany hines and mark peralta and i just want to give a very special shout out and say thank you to an amazing best friends volunteer kim clonch she has been doing a bananas amount of work helping with transcriptions for every episode of the podcast. We want the podcast to be accessible to all, you know, to as many people as we can make it. So her help has been invaluable and continues to be. She's doing the transcriptions for every episode. And you can see those transcriptions on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And listen, we know this to be true. None of us, I don't care who you are, this work doesn't happen without our volunteers, right? So thank you to Kim and all of the volunteers out there. That does it for this week. My name is John Dunn, and thank you for listening to the Best Friends Podcast.